Welcome everyone to Creating a Family Talk About Adoption and Foster Care. I am Dawn Davenport, your host, as well as the director of Creating a Family. Today, we're going to be talking about the seven core issues in adoption and foster care. We will be talking with Allison Maxson. She is the Chief Operating Officer at the National Center on Adoption and Permanency. She has 26 years of adoption practice in child welfare, foster care, and mental health. She is a curriculum developer and master trainer based in California. And she is a nationally recognized expert in the field of child welfare and children's mental health. She is the co-author of a book that is absolutely terrific, The Seven Core Issues in Adoption and Permanency, A Guide to Promoting Understanding and Healing in Adoption, Foster Care, Kinship Families, and Third-Party Reproduction. This is uh, published in 2019. I am so excited. Let me also say that she was a child welfare consultant on the Paramount Picture movie, Instant Family, which had to have been fun. So welcome, uh, Allison. I am so thankful and looking so forward to talking with you. Hi, Don. So nice to be here. It's a treat for me, an absolutely pleasure and a treat to meet you <laughs> and to get an opportunity to speak to all your families. Excellent. Well, let's jump in. Let me just, I, I will start by saying, everybody, the seven core issues in adoption and foster care are, maybe I should say drum roll, please, drum roll. Uh, they are loss, rejection, guilt and shame, grief, identity, intimacy, and mastery and control. We're going, that's going to be the outline that we follow here. We're going to be talking about those seven issues. Uh, these seven core issues impact all adoptees and, and foster kids to some degree and are crucial for adoptive and foster parents to understand. I should also say that they impact all members of the adoption or foster care triad, adoptees and foster children or adults, birth parents, and adoptive foster parents. Today, we're going to be primarily focusing on how these seven core issues impact adoptees and those who spent time in foster care and what role parents can play to help their children process these issues. But I recommend the book, Seven Core Issues in Adoption and Permanency, to, for you to get it and actually read it because it will help you understand how these issues impact you as a parent or if you are a birth parent. So jumping right in, the first of the seven core issues makes a lot of sense, loss. We talk a lot about loss, uh, loss and adoption. So, but let's, let's, Allison, so what, what are some of the losses that adoptive and foster children and, and adults have experienced? Wow, that's a, it's a big question. I hardly <laughs> even know where to start. Let me start, and, and for me, I'm glad you can see me, because I'll start with a visual that I think really helps, especially our parents, foster parents, adoptive parents, kinship parents, understand how the child experiences what we call those lifelong losses. You know, I, I, the, the smarty pants in me calls it the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> the losses for the child are lifelong. Um, and loss begins the journey for the child in adoption to have their life most often begin with what we call traumatic losses. When a child loses two familial trees, think about a, a maternal familial tree and a paternal familial tree, not just a birth mother and a birth father, but all the relationships, the culture, race, ethnicity, the heritage, the lineage, the root system, like the losses are, are significant and overwhelming. And even if a child's adopted at birth, they're not in full awareness of what their traumatic losses are. Those losses unfold through each developmental stage as the child understands more and more what they lost often culminating in, in, an intense, um, in, an, in an intensity around adolescence. So adolescents can often feel pretty overwhelming. I, I use this rock, and Dawn, you can see this rock. This is usually what I call the adoption rock. It's a symbol. And for me, it symbolizes um, the beginning of the journey for the child, which is it starts with the, the rough part of adoption, with the losses, what they're really going to lose, relationships genetic mirroring, siblings, parents, grandmas, 
my favorite dog, my neighborhood, my all the foods that I loved, like all the things, their life often begins with a lot of losses. And to get to what I call the healing side, which is this beautiful side, you see this kind of rich, gorgeous, beautiful side. Adoption can also mean healing and belonging and attachment and love and connectedness. And But adoption is always both both of these things. We actually often can't get to the healing and the good stuff without making sure we are acknowledging the losses the child has experienced, helping them understand those losses and helping them grieve those losses. We actually have to have parents, adoptive parents, kinship parents, foster parents, move towards these losses that the child has. Not pretend they didn't happen, not talk about them, avoid them, minimize them. And that's a little common in the world of adoption because of our history. Adoption has a long history of let's pretend adoption is just this and doesn't have any of the losses, right? It's why loss begins the journey. Mm-hmm. So I hope that helps to conceptualize how, how big when we say losses really are and the unfolding, the lifelong unfolding for the adoptee. Mm-hmm. And we'll include a handout that, that, uh, that you can link to that, that shows that loss is fundamentally at the center and then all the other uh, six issues at that point, core issues, are yeah. offshoots in many ways, but coming back to and touching base with the, the center, which is loss. So how does this loss manifest itself in children at different ages and stages? And let's start, uh, we'll just simplify things and say preschool, school age, teens, and then young adult and adulthood, or you can combine those two, combine teens and young adults, whatever you feel like is a a logical split there. Yeah. Well, and and even at at birth, Don, as you're saying, like, you know, even children who are placed at birth or adopted at birth have losses. You know, we know that that babies and that in utero experience is an important experience and that baby knows the sound of its mother's voice um, and has grown inside of their their mother. So they have already an attachment disruption and a disconnection from that mother that felt familiar to them. So children can already feel um, that they have to uh, attach. And if there isn't always a good fit, what we call fittedness and attachment Mm -hmm. fit, where parents are working really hard to attune to the needs of the child. And that child's needs um, may feel really different to a parent. Like that child came from a different set of genetic parents and they have very different needs and a quirkiness or um, have trouble um, settling into attachment, especially if the child's had multiple disruptions. So those losses can manifest in looking like behaviors or even rejection. You're not my mommy. I don't have to listen to you. They can manifest through various developmental stages and create challenges and barriers at times to um, this thing called attachment. Um, And the child can end up questioning, uh, is this my quote, real family? Do I really fit here? Do you really love me, my new parent? Or you know, am I going to struggle with being able to really relax into this family and and feel a sense of belonging because maybe I feel like my first family didn't want me or my birth parents um, didn't work hard to get me back. Children think often pretty simplistic thoughts about these in a very concrete way that if they didn't want me, maybe it was my fault or I'm a bad kid. So these unfolding dynamics can be projected onto the parent. Kids can push away um, what we call opposing attachment. I oppose getting close because maybe getting close hurts. Maybe I fear closeness and emotional intimacy. So depending on how the parent reads and attunes with what the child needs and is able to really help solidify and strengthen what we call a secure attachment relationship, that and, and it would kind of sound like this if I'm the parent that nothing you can do, my child, will stop my love. Nothing you could do, any behavior, any anger, and nothing stops my love. What we call that unconditional acceptance. 
because a lot of what happens with our kids that come from that loss, that come from this kind of harder place, that may feel like rejection to them, or it might feel like a lack of fittedness. Maybe I look really different. Maybe I'm African American or, or I'm a Latino child and I'm in a Caucasian family. So it already feels different for, for me. It might feel like, do I really fit or belong in this family? We have families that have to overcome these challenges. So we want parents to be able to move towards a child's, quote, distress, which may sound like moving towards their behaviors, to pull those behaviors kind of into the attachment relationship. So the behavior becomes the problem and never the child, right? Because our kids' losses often manifest through different behaviors and challenges they may have, sometimes based on how they're thinking about maybe I'm a bad kid or maybe my family didn't want me because there's something wrong about me. So sometimes these challenges connected to how the child's developmentally understanding adoption and their adoption story can create all of these other issues connected to the core issues connected to that original loss, like feelings of rejection or feelings of shame and guilt if I'm struggling being able to grieve from these losses. So mm -hmm. you hear some of the complexities that our parents are challenged with day in and day out. Mm -hmm. Not easy challenges for parents. Nor for kids. <laughs> or for <laughs> adoptees. All right, well, that's a, okay, that's a good segue. So we have kind of our base of the core issues, and that is loss. So let's move on to some of the satellite issues that are, are related to loss. And you've been talking about one of them, and that is rejection. So how can adopted and foster people, have they, how have they been rejected or how might they perceive life experiences as a rejection? Yeah, so it's such a great and kind of complex question because one of the things that all of us do around loss, and this isn't just specific to adoption, but all of us do this around any significant loss is what did I do to create this loss? Mm -hmm. How, what did I do? Because we want to control it and we want to avoid say, it next time. Yeah, exactly. If we did something to cause the loss, then in the primal part of our brain, that means that we could not do that something and we could protect ourselves for future loss, right? Yeah, help me do that. I, I don't want this. I don't want to feel this again. Mm -hmm. So if I can, if I'm a, a, a kid and a, an adoptee, and maybe I've had multiple attachment disruptions, let's say I've had three different foster homes that weren't able to hold on to me, and I moved and I moved, and all of these disrupted attachments have helped me to feel a, a deep sense of rejection. Not that, not that it's intentional, but children really personalize these experiences. I can feel like it's my fault. So I can have deep feelings of rejection and then have, in essence, what we call the fear of rejection. I'm going to fear future rejection. So I'm not getting close to you, mom or dad. You could be my new mom and dad, and I'm not getting close to you because I fear further rejection. You have to remember that if I'm this child, that's been my experience. These aren't just kind of words. My whole sensory system remembers that deep pain and those feelings of rejection. So I'm going to maybe push away from attachment and even oppose attachment. It could become oppositional and defiant because I, I don't want more pain. If I learn that attachment brings more loss and more pain, intense fear of rejection can, I can internalize that. So helping parents be pretty aware of how fear of rejection plays a big role in their child's behaviors. Mm -hmm. So parents aren't taking those behaviors personally, like, you know, we don't act like that in this home and all those things that we can get very stuck on, mm -hmm. but really understanding the dance of attachment that this child has experienced and decoding that. So we can look at what the child's most likely trying to do, which is protect a pretty fragile interior. I just don't want more pain. I don't know that I can tolerate more rejection and more pain. So we'd have to be able to move towards that child's distress, reduce that distress, and work to deepen and strengthen attachment, even if the child is saying things like, you're not my real mom, and I don't have to listen to you, and I'm moving out of here, and I'm calling my social worker, <laughs> and all of those things that we don't fall into what I call that attachment dilemma, and that attachment dilemma 
here in rejection, Dawn, sounds like what the child most often needs to heal the most is attachment, deep emotional intimacy with their primary attachment caregiver, deep emotional intimacy, is often the thing they fear the most, they fear it the most, because they started life often with core attachment disruptions. So how do they not have deep feelings of, of rejection and then fear subsequent rejection? Mm-hmm. And how might that fear of rejection or a desire to protect yourself from rejection look in a teen year and teen, let's say teen and young adults, because it's not just with parents that often uh, our children fear being rejected by. Yeah. So what we might see in in our teens is often a a real constricting inward for our teen where they kind of shut down and, and, and really isolate or self isolate. So we might not even be knowing what's really happening kind of on the interior of our child. They could, if they're more externalized in their behaviors, they might be doing a lot of, you know, I hate you or you're not my mother or I'm going to go, you know, find my birth mother and she wouldn't treat me like you're treating me. And they may be what we call externalizing those thoughts and feelings, but some of our kids don't externalize those. They kind mm-hmm. of constrict inward and hunker down and can sometimes have very dark, distressing feelings of feeling less than or broken or damaged and and it's why it's so important for, for parents to, to, to keep focusing on creating that healthy relational pattern with their child, keeping those lines of communication really open. Because especially in adolescence, they're thinking much more abstractly. They're feeling much more deeply about their adoption story, about what happened and why it happened. And just because they're not talking about it doesn't mean they're not thinking about it and feeling about it. So that we have to really just, especially for parents of teens, become really good listeners. Less talking as parents, (laughs) much more what I call deep listening. Like, what are you really trying to say to me, son? What are you really trying to say? It looks like you're feeling this is hard right now. Sounds like adoption feels hard right now. And I'm not adopted. I don't know how that feels. Will you help me understand? How does it feel to you? And just be able to do really deep listening. It's often where search and reunion comes up again for teens because they're really curious about figuring out where they come from, their origin, history, cultural, racial, ethnic issues around identity formation, having a positive uh, racial identity. And if they've lacked that mirroring, it's a real pull for them. So issues around identity formation, who am I? Who am I? I need all the pieces to my puzzle to figure out me. And if our teen isn't getting a lot of those questions answered around adoption, all those kind of questions that adoption creates, um, they can sometimes work to numb out of that pain. We see the need to emotionally numb or detach. They could start using substances or even have really depressed or even suicidal ideations, engage in high-risk behavior, all kinds of things to try to not feel what they're feeling if, if parts of them are feeling pretty overwhelmed around identity formation and some of those adoption core issues that intensify in adolescence. So support from parents during this time is really so critically important, but it's not the same as when they were little because our teens have very different needs around being able to figure out who they are and to be supported in figuring out those more complicated pieces um, around identity formation, because it's different when you're an adoptee. You don't have access to all your pieces like maybe you and I had because we weren't adopted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're going to circle to identity. That's one of the ones I want to, I want to make sure we talk about. Yeah. Big news, everyone. The Jockey Bean Family Foundation has provided us with scholarships for free access to five of our most popular courses. You can find these courses and the coupon code at the website bit.ly slash JBF support. That is bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y slash all cap J-B-F then cap S for support. So J-B-F-S, that's all capitalized, then U-P-P-O-R-T. 
Uh, again, the coupon code to get you these courses free is going to be on that page as well. And the courses are Raising Resilient Kids with Dr. Ken Ginsberg, Raising a Child with ADHD to a Successful and Healthy Adulthood with Dr. Ned Hallowell, Unexpected Stresses for Newly Adoptive Parents, Practical Solutions to Typical Food Issues with Dr. Katja Rao, and Parenting Children Who Have Experienced Trauma with Karen Buckwalter. Make sure you go to the bit.ly slash JBF support to get information on these courses. All right, so another of the core issues is guilt and shame, which is such an interesting one because as adults, we don't think, why would a child, this wasn't about any of this was not about the child. And we, that's what we think. And that's what we say to our children, but children don't often perceive the same, the, the, these events the same way as adults. So where does guilt and shame come in from the uh, adopted person or the foster uh, person's uh, perspective? Yeah. So guilt and shame, and, and I'll, I'll start by kind of differentiating the two, because sometimes we lump yeah. them together. It's actually why in our book, we spend a lot of time making sure there's real clarity on the parents and kind of understanding what we call healthy guilt and then unhealthy guilt. And a lot of us experience both of those, because <laughs> we need to understand healthy guilt. It's actually how we learn pro-social behaviors and what, what's right to do and what's wrong to do and why I wouldn't just steal something from you or you know, grab something out of your hands. We use healthy guilt all the time as parents, yeah. um, but there's also unhealthy guilt. Um, and sometimes even unhealthy guilt can segue into feelings of shame. And, and the feeling of shame is very different than healthy guilt, which is an adaptive emotion. Shame is the feeling that there's something wrong or bad or damaged about me, my person, who I am, my being. That Allison is less than everybody else that everybody else has a certain value and something's wrong about me. And this isn't an uncommon experience for our youth and our um, kids that get adopted and land in foster care because of what happened with those traumatic losses, which led to feelings of rejection, like maybe I deserve this. Maybe something's wrong with me. Maybe there is something broken or flawed about me. I can develop deep feelings of shame about myself and not be able to communicate those feelings with my parents. I may not be communicating those feelings. They may show up in behaviors. So when we put, when it's time to do homework or we're putting challenges on our kids, you might hear, I'm stupid and I'm dumb and I can't learn anything and I'm bad. And that's how you can hear shame surfacing. They may not be using that word shame, but, um, It's not uncommon for the experience of, it isn't just adoption, it's often prior to even the the adoption experience, all of the attachment disruptions, all of the breaks in attachment over and over again. Our children can often leave them feeling there must be something fundamentally wrong with me because people didn't hold on to me. My parents didn't hold on to me. They didn't fight for me. Or why did I keep moving eight times or 10 times? Or there has to be something wrong about me. And it's a deep-seated feeling that really does need to be addressed, often therapeutically, to be worked through um, effectively. Uh, And it's why our parents most often need to be doing what we call therapeutic parenting, very non-traditional parenting. So therapeutic parenting, where the child now needs Uh, needs healing at their core to feel unconditionally loved and accepted and that they're not here they're here they have equal value and worth as everyone else and many of our kids don't feel that Um, and it can be hard because sometimes what our parents say is well he's got all these behaviors and he pushes and he pushes and he's so hard to get close to and it's hard to connect emotionally and how do you get close to that pretty wounded inner self that feels flawed and damaged because the attachment dilemma, Dawn, kind of sounds like this, that if I'm this child, if I let you, parent, get so close to me, really close to me and let you in, you're going to see how bad and ugly and damaged and broken I really am. 
That's how shame sounds from the child's perspective. I don't want you that close because you'll reject me. You'll send me back. And I've had that experience maybe over and over again. So I know that feeling. Um, so that shame-based core is really something that we need parents to be in awareness of and have some tools as to how to therapeutically move towards the child to deepen and strengthen that attachment relationship so that the emotional intimacy can be that healing element. In fact, always I say this because I am a therapist in the field on that I can never heal a child in the way that a parent can. I can facilitate the strengthening of a healing relationship between parent and child, hence attachment, because it really is that primary attachment relationship that in, in essence is the healing mechanism for the child because it allows for the emotional intimacy to develop in a prolonged way that helps the child start to think differently about themselves. Maybe I am lovable. If you love me, maybe I am lovable. If I can really let your love in and I feel unconditionally accepted and loved by you, I can release that shame and maybe feel worthy and valuable of being loved. Mm -hmm. Hear how that plays out mm -hmm. over, yeah, it's such a big challenge. It is. And, it's, and we're going to talk at the end about how to parent towards to, with a knowledge of these seven core issues. And you're, and you're saying so many important yeah. things as to, how we parent to these issues. Let's move to the next issue. Uh, I, I, just before we move off with shame, I heard a great comment that was, our children come to us clothed in shame. And it's so important. Mm. I love that. I mean, I don't love that they're clothed yeah. in shame. I love the, the yeah. imagery of that. And I think that's powerful uh, for us because if, if nothing else, and, and one of the things you have said that I will bring up at the end, it helps us not to take their behaviors personally. And that is yeah. crucial. <laughs> it just is crucial for us as parents. All right. Another of the core issues is grief tied directly to loss, one would assume, because when we experience loss, we have grief. But uh, and, and so let's talk some about grief for from the perspective of the adoptive person or foster person foster child yes and and grief if i were holding up the symbol so you could see what we call the the core issues wheel which they'll get in a handout mm -hmm. but what you would see is is loss at the center and then a sp the first spoke coming out is rejection, leading to shame and guilt, and then grief. So these are all linked. And we want you to really see grief is where the work of the core issues lay. So we can't skip grief. And we really have to kind of make sure we're doing what we call the work of grief. And we actually wrote pretty extensively about, because there's a lot of myths and misinformation about grief, especially as it connects to adoption and our kids from foster care and that are adoptees, that, you know, that really it, it, we talked about it a long time ago, so we don't have to talk about adoption anymore. But this lifelong experience is an unfolding of the grief process over the lifespan that these, the, the work of grief, especially for the adoptee can often feel really overwhelming because once they kind of close one chapter of grief, another loss surfaces like oh I a sibling found me and I'm 21 or oh I just found my maternal birth grandma and I'm 28 and even with reunions when we find someone what often happens is we open up the grief because we didn't really know what we lost so mm -hmm. this unfolding of the intensity of grief over time especially for um, the adoptee can often feel overwhelming like life keeps throwing these curveballs like here's another curveball and here's another curveball so they're often you know dodging and, and weaving through the grief and the grief with our younger kids don't always think this is such an important piece because sometimes um, when parents first find me they'll say well he's just angry all the time he's angry and he's angry and he's mad and he's and that's a stage of grief right and I'll often say well how much are you talking about his story and what happened to him and the family of origin and his traumatic experiences? And as development unfolds, children need to revisit their trauma and their adoption story over and over again, because 
in the mind of that child, you know, we're all storytellers. The child's trying to make sense of their story. Mm -hmm. So stories and talking and asking questions are how the child needs to, first of all, understand their story, but grieve the losses connected to their story so they can actually get to kind of the good part, the healing, the strength, identity formation. But you have to go through the grief. And when I say go through the grief, for me, it's um, one of my favorite movies was The NeverEnding Story. And I don't know if you remember The NeverEnding Story, but one of the challenges the hero had to do is he had to go through the swamp of despair. <laughs> and I love that swamp of despair. Like, where they have to go through? Yes, you can't go around it, over it, you know. <laughs> you have to go through that swamp. And the, the piece, and I always will tell parents this, Dawn, that the worst thing for the child is to not have a, a partner to go through that swamp of despair with. Mm -hmm. And the partner has to be the parent that you have to be willing to go into that pain with the child to not just try to fix it and clean it up and put a nice pretty bow on adoption. Like, Oh, you were chosen and you're a gift and you're all like, we just try to put a bow on it. Or don't focus on the loss. Think about what you gained. You gained me and our yeah. love and our family. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, here, 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 here. And our kid is locked inside, often feeling like, yeah, but it hurts. Mm -hmm. It hurts. And I think about them and I long for them. And are there siblings out there? And I have all these questions. And our tendency as parents is to, and often this happened to us as kids, is our parents didn't always do feelings very well or our feelings very well. So when I say moving towards the grief, we want to be able to send the message to our child. And this is often the mantra I give to families that our family does their pain together. We do our grief together. So if you're feeling sad or brokenhearted or overwhelmed, you come find mommy and I'm not going to shut it down. I'm not going to, you know, make it go away, but I'm going to sit with you and hold you through that. And I'm going to feel it with you. I'm going to go into that swamp of despair whenever you need me to. And it could be when they're eight and 10 and 12 and 15. But I want that child to know I'm always going to be open to how they're feeling whenever this comes up for them or is triggered by a movie or a poem or somebody teasing them about being adopted, which happens all the time. Um, I'm going to be the one willing to go into the depth of that feeling with them so they're not alone in all their grief, loss, pain, anger, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And, and keeping in mind that grief is not something you deal with once and it goes away, just like loss is not something. It, it, different life yeah. events will, can and will uh, pop up. And, and one that, that often catches uh, adopted people and, and, and sometimes foster youth as well by surprise is the, when the a birth of their first child. And, and sometimes the grief again, or, and, and, and shame, I mean, uh, and grief and, and rejection about how could somebody have uh, had adoptees say to us, I mean, how could I look at my newborn infant and think, how could somebody give that away? How could, how could yeah. anyone do that? So, you know, there are different life stages that bring forth different nuances to each of these core issues. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Now you've talked some about identity. Uh, so let's, let's revisit that though. How, do, how does identity play? How, why is it one of our core issues that yeah. uh, adopted people are people who are not being raised by their genetic parents? Yeah. Well, and if you imagine again, we're going to keep going on the spokes and the wheel because they're all connected. So identity and actually Don, I'd like to start with the, parents' challenges around identity, because it isn't just, if we focus on the, on the child, but I want to begin with our parents, our foster parents, our adoptive parents. We can have our own, quote, identity challenges around, do I feel entitled to parent this child? Am I the real parent? What's mm -hmm. my role? That we can struggle with these labels around, am I, am I a parent? Am I an adoptive parent? Am I a foster parent or a kinship parent? Am I the real parent? And The real parent you know, the one that gets us all. Yeah. Am I the real parent? <laughs> That's, right. Mm -hmm. That's right. And one of the things we do, and we actually go into this in our book too, because it really does help first the parent and the child understand the different roles that parents play. Because in adoption, 
what happens to the child's experience is what we call the, the three different kinds of parents. So all of us have a genetic parent, the parents that made us, made this genetic body, a genetic parent, a legal parent, and an everyday parent. Most of us, me included, was raised with a parent that had all three of those roles, all in one. So it was never an issue around, are you my real parent? Or what our kids often get and struggle with is, you know, who's the real parent? And I always say, well, all three of those are the real parent. They really are real. What we want to be able to help child to our children with language, like, um, are you talking about the birth first parents, the parents that made you? Let's talk about that. Are you having feelings about that right now? Again, I'm often using kind of education and helping them differentiate the roles. So when you say real parent, oh, I know what you mean. You mean your birth first parents, your birth mother, Jenny. Let's talk about her right now. Are you having some feelings about her? Just opening up, but also doing some education so I don't feel like, am I the real parent? I'm your legal parent and your everyday parent if I'm your adoptive parent. So I hold these two roles, but I will never hold this role. I will never be your genetic parent. And I'm really ongoingly helping my child understand these roles, allow them to have their feelings that starts with confusion, like, you're not my real mom. I don't have to listen to you. But I'm able then to explain and help my child understand because it does feel confusing to them at times. And they don't always know the right words to be using. And it can help me as the parent feel like, am I the real parent? I can be confused about that. So we want to make sure parents feel really empowered. That's the identity, owning that you are, uh, that we're, yeah. you're real, but so are the other parents are real. That's, it comes back to the parents not taking it personally and doing their own work first. Yes. Yes, and that's so important because we don't want to say we're not going to have any feelings. We have lots of feelings about all these things as parents, right? Oh, yes. We absolutely do. So the identity, I'll switch to the child for a second. So for the, the identity for the child, um, the identity challenges will be there connected to, I, I had a, a maternal familial tree and a paternal familial tree that I'm not being raised on. So those parts of my heritage, culture, language, race, ethnic heritage, like all of that, that I'm not getting from them that can help me to feel one kind of disconnected, but who am I? What parts of me now feel different? Who would I have been if I was raised with those familial trees? And I have to assimilate my adoptive parents, culture, you know, belief systems, like parts of me will be very similar to the family I'm raised in, but not, that's not all of me. Mm -hmm. How do I assimilate those other parts of me that maybe I don't have access to those relationships? It's actually why I'm a big proponent of openness, because children need access to those familial trees. If I can have a connection to my grandma, even if it's not my my birth mother, um, or on my paternal familial tree. Remember that birth first fathers are really important too. They're half of our genetics. So having linkages to those familial trees allows the child more access to what they need when they need it around identity formation. And every kid's different. So I don't want to sound like there's kind of a fixed recipe. Some kids need and yearn for more connection and contact. Some kids yearn for less and have often, I've heard very little need. And I've seen some of that, like, mm, I don't think about it much. And, but other kids really do. So it's, there's a lot of variables here. But the piece around identity formation to really help parents kind of, I think, really understand what happens in adolescence because it's a real shift. So the, the main psychosocial stage of, of development, the kind of the most important uh, task for the teen is to figure out who they are, identity formation, being able to create a cohesive narrative around who they are. And adoptees oftentimes have missing pieces to their puzzle, whether they were moved repeatedly. So it isn't always about our birth first parents. If I lived in a foster home the first three years of my life, that foster home, those grownups hold three years of my memories that I don't hold three years of my life. So having a connection back to those first three years, because the grown-ups, caregivers, 
hold the memories. They do reality testing in ways that little ones really can't because they're little. They don't have cognitive memories of those times. Mm -hmm. So I have, and for instance, I do an adult adoptee support group. And what I most often hear from my adoptees that were from closed adoptions that had little access to those early years, uh, especially if they were in foster care and, and don't still have an ongoing relationship to those caregivers, that they feel like they lost parts of who they are. They lost parts of their story. So they don't have those reinforced. Like with my kids that I gave birth to, I can reinforce what they were doing in one, at one and when they walked and what their favorite food was and what their favorite blankie was. Like I reinforce all of that. So they get all parts of themselves um, within their cohesive narrative or identity. They're not missing big critical components of themselves. So our kids that have a lot of attachment disruptions or they're really disconnected from their maternal and paternal familial trees, adolescence is often more work and they don't always have access. So it can sometimes be extended or create more intensive crisis for an adolescent that can feel really overwhelmed and distressed. And are they sharing this? Who are they sharing this with? And sometimes what we find is they're not sharing it with many folks. So really important for parents just to be really attuned to the adolescence tasks change significantly. And again, we wrote uh, about all of these nuances. There's pages and pages in our book. So if it sounds like, ah, it sounds like a lot. <laughs> There's well, much more then there. you have a book to read. Now, does, uh, does open adoption, which is the majority of at least domestic infant adoptions, uh, have some degree of openness now, though that's a, it can vary, the, how that looks can vary significantly. But do you perceive that as a protective factor uh, for this core issue or a cure for this? I think parents would hope it might be a cure. Um, but uh, how, do you, how do you see openness in adoption as it addresses this core issue? Yeah, I see it as, as probably similar to you, Dawn, as it being really critical. Because if the child, and, and I want you to kind of, if parents can imagine children are like a staircase developmentally. So when they're one, when they're two, when they're three, when they're four, on each step, step of development, the child needs different things from different parents in these roles. So let's say the child on, on their age five, and what they maybe need to hear most from their birth mother is that she she was in crisis and needed to make a very difficult choice that was best for the child. And she made that choice and it wasn't because she didn't love the child. And she can say that directly to the child. It's very different coming from somewhere else. So the child can say, do you have any questions for me? I want you to hear how much I love you. Hearing that directly from her allows the child to get potentially their needs met when they have those needs, and I want us to think about kind of developmental needs and attachment needs on each of those stages of development. It's not, oh, we'll wait till they're 18 and do a reunion at 18 because maybe they had all of these different needs on different stages of development that could have helped them avoid stacking and accumulating all these core issues. Hence, we can take this and make it bigger and bigger <laughs> by not doing openness. Right. And even when there's some challenges, we have healthy boundaries and openness. I get some of the challenges. I work with a lot of families around openness and do a lot of facilitating the strengthening of those relationships. But we never want to create kind of walls, if you will. We want to create healthy boundaries. Boundaries are movable. Boundaries are adaptable based on changing circumstances. But walls like the Great Wall of China, that's like a closed adoption. <laughs> Mm -hmm. tends to leave a child with a lot of unmet needs connected to their adoption story, history, culture, lineage, ethnicity, all of those things that they would have gleaned from those familial trees, their family of origin trees. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's, yeah, spot on, I think. 
One of our wonderful partners is Spinch Chapin. They are a licensed and accredited nonprofit organization in the New York City metro area that has been offering adoption services for more than 100 years. As a recipient of the Human Rights Campaign, All Children's All Families Seal of Recognition, Spence Chapin is committed, truly committed, to equality and adoption and is proud of the many kids they have placed in loving, stable, same-sex households. Spence Chapin's international adoption program in South Africa and Colombia encourage applicants from all types of families. We are talking with Allison Maxson. She is co-author of the book, Seven Core Issues in Adoption and Permanency. We're walking our way through the seven core issues. <laughs> we've hit, uh, we've gone through the initial core issues of loss, which is at the center. And we've talked about rejection, then guilt and shame, grief, identity. And the next core issue is intimacy. What do you mean by intimacy? Yeah, well, we, I want to think about, um, I've been talking a lot about attachment. I think as, as for parents and children, I'm talking about emotional intimacy. The emotional intimacy between the parent and the child. So this real level of closeness, what we might consider a, a secure attachment relationship. If the child's had a lot of disruptions and fears attachment, imagine fearing attachment. And some of our kids... You're not getting close to me because you're going to leave me like everybody else left me or you're going to reject me like everybody else rejected me. So we really do want our parents to be really astute in this thing called emotional intimacy. How do I get emotionally close to my child? How do I help my heart get really close to their heart? And this is all about affect and feelings. This isn't about words. Sometimes what I find is us grownups, us parents use a lot of words, talk, 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 talk. <laughs> And I want us to think really differently about emotional intimacy and getting close to a child of trauma or a child of loss that's had a lot of attachment disruptions. We're talking about what we call a limbic bond, which is a heart-to-heart -heart connection. Children have to feel very safe, be able to not fear their parents' distress or anger. Or if I'm really distressed or struggling as a parent, going to be hard to get close to my child because they're going to defend against my stress or my anxiety or my whatever I'm struggling with. So I have to keep myself in a really good place emotionally if I'm going to help my child get emotionally close and connected to me. And I want us also to see these um, identity and intimacy are like twins. They're like two sides of a coin. So for instance, if the identity challenges for the child, Think about an adoptee. If I really struggle and I don't know who I am, I feel lost. I feel I don't know who I am. How do I get close to someone else emotionally? How do I move into this place where I allow myself to get my needs met and create healthy, authentic intimacy when I don't know who I am and I feel overwhelmed or I feel less than if shame has been internalized? So you can see where these issues might lead to the struggle around this thing called intimacy. Mm -hmm. It might look very different between the parent and child, but if the child grows up, as maybe an adult adoptee might, if we never talked about adoption or we never talked about the trauma of adoption and their losses and did the work of grief, that they may really struggle with, I, uh, I don't let anybody close to me. I'm not authentically close to anyone. I don't know what my needs are. I don't communicate my needs. I don't feel safe enough. I don't feel valuable enough to allow myself to get close enough to get those needs met. So it's a, pretty, it's a pretty significant challenge, but I always feel like when parents kind of even hear this, we might start responding to our child's behaviors and distress a little differently to see that the goal is to strengthen that parent-child attachment relationship and build a heart-to-heart -heart connection to our child. Because if we're able to, if they're able to have that intimacy with their parent, they can then go forth and feel comfortable yeah. being intimate with others, friends and, and partners throughout life. Yes, absolutely. Critical. You said it all right there, John. It's yeah, just so it important. Is critical. But it starts with us as parents. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
All right, and the last of the core issues is uh, what you, you lump together, mastery and control. Is there a distinction between those two? Yes, uh, big time. So I want you to kind of, as parents, kind of think about them almost as like um, opposite sides of a continuum. So if all of the unidentified or unnamed or unacknowledged losses, again, I'm going to refer to this, all of them, we don't talk about them and I'm not assisted in grieving them or even understanding them. If all of these have stayed really unacknowledged, I can, as a child, have intense feelings of powerlessness, helplessness. All of these decisions were made without me having any input. I had no control. The feelings of powerlessness and helplessness can feel so overwhelming on my inside that what you see me do as the kid is kind of flip that over and fight for control. So morning, noon, and night, I'm going to fight you for control. So I'm going to wake up and you're going to say, hey, it's time to wake up. No, it's not. Or, hey, it's time to do homework. No, it's not. I don't have to listen. <laughs> Lots of control. So think about control on one end. Underneath the behaviors of control are often deep feelings of powerlessness. I have no power. I have two hands but have no power to change anything, control if anything. Nobody asked me. No one's often talking to me about what happened and why it happened. And so I feel out of control and powerless. The goal is to help constellation members, but especially this child, move into the direction of what we call mastery, where we get a sense of internal mastery over these core issues. So not only do I, not, do I understand my losses, what happened and why it happened, I know it's not my fault. I know it was a crisis with the grown-ups, my birth first mother and my birth first father, and I know what happened and why it happened. And it wasn't because this little baby was worthless. I was a baby just like any other baby, that it wasn't my fault. But I actually have to do the work of these internal core issues to get to that place of mastery. And I mostly need my parents' help, which is why we have to be talking about all these things. Because it doesn't just kind of fall from the sky. Mastery over all of these complex internal issues. You know, it's not a, like a, again, like fall from the sky, like, oh, we have mastery. It's the work of this. So one of the things, on, and I'll just kind of plug this right now, because it was one of the things we learned as we wrote the book, which ended up being like this bigger and bigger thing. Um, our publisher came back to us earlier this year and said, you know, the book is amazing. It's great, but it's 450 pages of like dense and intense. So he said, would you be willing to write a workbook for parents mm -hmm. and make it like a workbook, like activities where they can. So we're in the middle of making kind of everything I just talked to you about for parents activity-based. So it all resonates in such a different way it's and it's so much more digestible. It's so much yeah. fun to do, but I, it's why the book might not be a good fit for everyone. Cause it's very like when you read it, it's, it feels intense and it's just a lot, but a workbook that's very parent friendly because mm -hmm. I don't want any of what I just talked about to scare parents. Mm -hmm away from these issues. In fact, we, we need parents to move into them. Mm -hmm. So the workbook mm -hmm. that we're doing is, it won't be out till next year, but very parent friendly. Mm -hmm. So these aren't scary things we can't talk about. We want to empower parents with the tools and the language to dive into all of it. Right. Mm -hmm. So exactly. Yeah. And that will be 2021 and we will be promoting it and we will also include it on our uh, uh, favorite book page. Uh, so you can find it for, for people who are listening. Uh, you can find it there or just go to Amazon or uh, just Google. Uh, you will find it. All right. So now let's let's circle back and, and be practical. You've talked about, which is really kind of the essence of what you're doing at the workbook. Uh, you've talked yeah. about, we've talked about the seven core issues and, and they sound, they, they sounds overwhelming to a certain extent. We think, gosh, we've got to, we have to step up, we as parents. So you've mentioned a couple of very practical things that parents can do. And that's where I want us to focus the last bit of time we have is on the yeah. practical. I will start with one that you said a couple of times, and it's one that we hone in on and, and kind of harp, somebody might say actually harp on, and that is don't take it personally. 
Don't take our children's questions. Don't take their grief. Don't take their unspoken, uh, and when they're turning their, their moods because they're, they're on us because they, we're a safe person. Don't take that personally. If nothing else, it seems to me that we could step back and say, look at all our kiddos have got to be processing. Yeah, this is not yeah. about us. So let's don't make it about us. So, uh, I, so I will start by saying that from a practical standpoint, just don't take it personally. If nothing else, have empathy for what our kids are, are having to process. It's a lot. Yes, it is. And again, easier said than done, right? We always go, of course, I'm not going to take it personal. But on the 10th <laughs> time, yeah. like, really, really, you're still going at me? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and let's be honest, our kids, any kid worth their salt knows your buttons. And if they want to get a rise out of you, they jolly well will. And yeah, so it's, yeah, I'm not saying that I am perfect on that one either. Yeah. If yeah. I can, my kids can, and I do uh, on occasion take it personally because uh, by golly, they're yeah. experts at it. So good point. Yes. Um, yeah. All right. So that's one. Um, let's talk some about the attachment because you've at the beginning talked a lot about honing in and, and really focusing on creating uh, that attachment. So suggestions there. Yeah, so that's, um, it isn't ever just kind of the speaking about attaching to the child. It's also, we as the parent bring our own attachment pattern and style to that mm. relationship. Amen. So whenever I talk, I really begin with us. Because we always say, well, it's him, it's him, it's him, it's him. And I go, well, mm -hmm. we have an attachment. In fact, we're, we're doing this in our workbook as well. We actually begin with the parents. We actually want us to explore our own patterns and styles of attaching because mm -hmm. this lays what I call the emotional freeway within us. We all have an emotional freeway. Not things we're saying necessarily, but this freeway was built in childhood. This is about mm -hmm. brain development. So our earliest attachment experiences kind of create this emotional freeway. Was it loving and safe and supportive, those early emotional experiences? Or was there chaos and yelling and screaming and trauma and you know this again lays this emotional freeway where we might have a lot of triggers we're not even in awareness of. Mm -hmm. um, I want to give parents a way to and um, maybe as we wrap up because I know we're, we're coming up against the clock but give them a, maybe a, some tools and a way to think mm -hmm. about this that really might ongoingly be helpful mm -hmm. that one of the things parents can often do is we, we want kids to talk about their feelings and we kind of go direct, meaning we're, we're, we're at the, if your child's like a house, it's like we're trying to get through the front door. And the core issues are often feeling so intensely that we can't go through the front door. We have to go through the back door or tunnel underground or go through the chimney. So I want parents to think about using things like movies like my movie instant family or movies about loss disney's great about this or books, books. about mm -hmm. adoption and and allowing the child to project not talking about their adoption but hey what did you notice the kid in the movie doing how is lizzie feeling when she moved again mm -hmm. or how is the kid in the in the book about adoption how is he feeling allow the child safely to project out and become the character out there as opposed to tell me how you're feeling about adoption. Because mm -hmm. what happens to the kid immediately is I don't, I can't go there. I, you'll see them shut down and it feels overwhelming because kids can't distance how they're feeling intensely in that moment. And again, and, you just trigger all my core issues. They may not even know. They may not be, or be able to put words to That's it, right. but they can yeah. when they identify with Brown Bear who is struggling with, with this. They can identify and help Brown Bear figure it out. So, I, you know, for younger children. Yeah. Yeah, and don't just, exactly. don't just start with younger. There are so many, well, as you point out, books. Uh, but there's, I mean, you point out movies, but there are so many wonderful YA books that, uh, that you could read with your kid. Uh, have, uh, and so don't just stop utilizing books when our kids are tiny. It's easier. It feels yeah. more safe to do it then. All right, go ahead. Yeah. I agree with, so sorry with what you're saying. Well, and Don, I'm happy to come back when we're, when the workbook is out and maybe a year from now and circle back and, you know, kind of revisit some of these things, um, even maybe from the parent's perspective, because that's, you know, kind of a whole other piece that for me is, is enjoyable to explore. It's important for us to be in awareness of our own triggers and challenges and, 
you know, becoming an adoptive parent or foster parent mm -hmm. or kinship parent adds this whole layer mm -hmm. of tasks on us Absolutely. to learn the right language and how do I help yeah. my child with like, it's mm -hmm. just more complicated. Yeah. Amen. All right. We have been talking about the seven core issues in adoption and permanency with Allison Maxson. Thank you so much for being with us today. Remind everybody that the views expressed in the show are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the position of creating a family, our partners or our underwriters. And keep in mind that the information given in this interview is general advice. To understand how it applies to your specific situation, you need to work with your adoption or foster care professional. Throughout this show, Allison has talked about the seven core issues in adoption and foster care, and she was describing a visual that will be linked to, we will have a handout and we will link that in the show notes that you can find that will take you so that you can see the visual. There will also be in that a uh, seven core issue table, which talks about the issues briefly describes how they impact adoptive persons, birth parents, first parents, as well as uh, adoptive parents or foster parents. So you could check that out in the show notes. Thanks for joining us today, and I will see you next week.